The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, including Olas Media. Olas Media. You're listening to the Lawyer in Blue Jeans podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Lawyer in Blue Jeans podcast. I am your host. My name is Justin Isaac. And today I'm joined by Art Castingares. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, Art is the uh, head publisher or the publisher, yes. publisher of uh, laprenta.org. And we are talking today to Art because he is the one who broke the story about the fraud and, and well, I guess the PPP fraud, and more specifically, um, with uh, Councilwoman uh, Cardenas, 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 I keep on messing that up, sorry, uh, and her brother, uh, which we recently discussed on KUSI. And I wanted to talk to Art because I found this to be a really interesting story and, and just how he came about this uh, and how the story came about in general before the or what led to the indictment. Um, and so I wanted to have Art on the show to talk about this a little bit more in detail, maybe talking about First Amendment as well, too, when it comes to reporting. Uh, but Art, if you could just give us a little bit of a background, uh, how you got here, how long you've been doing it for. Yeah, great. Uh, well, I'm glad to be here today. Thank you so much. So I've been the publisher for a little over eight years. So uh, La Prensa San Diego was started in 1976. Um, last month, we celebrated our, 70, our 47th anniversary. Um, I've been the owner for a little over eight years. So it was around 39 years before I bought it. I had known it. The founder, um, Dan Munoz Sr., started it. It became the first Hispanic publication in San Diego. So there's a lot of history to it, and um, it was around for a long time. I bought it in 2015 to preserve it. They were going to close it. And uh, I, I'm not a journalist. My background's not in journalism. I spent 25 years in politics before I bought the paper. Uh, okay. And so it was just a good time where he was about to retire. The son had taken it over. Mm-hmm. And he was about to retire, and I had been running campaigns for a long time. And I'd run over 74 campaigns. And I was looking for something else to do that was different. Yeah and a way to use my expertise and my insight into politics. And instead of doing it one election at a time, I was able to, to write about broader things, broader issues. And so it was a good time, and, but when I bought the paper, I never intended to write. Yeah. I had you know, a, a bank of reporters, and I just wanted to set kind of the tone and the, the philosophy for the paper. And then as more and more political stories came up, and the reporters sometimes missed some of the connections, they just didn't have the experience. Yeah. And so I would add to the stories. I'd say, you know, you don't understand the connection between this person and that person. And, and by the end of the story, it ended up being more my story than theirs. Yeah. And so I started putting my own name on the stories. And it started to, to really make sense to me. And I started to appreciate the work of journalism. Yeah. So, and you mentioned about the philosophy of the paper. Um, so what would you consider your philosophy to be? You know, it, it's really interesting. When I bought the paper, before I bought the paper, it was very inward looking. Mm-hmm. It was a paper that spoke to the community. And it wasn't really followed by people outside of the community. It, it, it was a very uh, niche type of community paper. It's bilingual. It's about 40% in Spanish still. And so when I bought it, I wanted to open it up, and I wanted to speak to the community at large and, and share both what was happening in the community and what was happening to the community. And so, you know, every issue that happens in, in government and politics, everything affects Latinos like it affects everybody else, right? 
Um, but sometimes it's more acute, uh, whether it's traffic in Barrio Logan, for example, right? The port, mm-hmm. all the trucks that leave the port drive through Barrio Logan. Yeah. And so the pollution and the traffic and things. So those are very specific. But education and immigration and taxation, all those issues affect everybody in the community, yeah. not just Latinos. Uh, but some issues affect Latinos um, you know, more acutely. Yeah. And so what we try to do is we try to write about all kinds of issues with the perspective of what does it do to our community? How can it help or hurt our community? So kind of a micro look while also looking at the macro aspect of the city as a whole? Absolutely. Everything that happens, whatever happens with homelessness, for example, right? It affects everybody. It affects Latinos as well. Um, but it's a sensitivity to the community. But the tagline that we use a lot is accountability through transparency whether it's you know corruption or, or taxation or how just the government runs. Yeah. If we don't know as the public what they're doing, how do we hold them accountable at election time? And so really it's about transparency and explaining to people what's really happening. We can use a lot more transparency in our government and uh, as a I whole. I think so. Yeah, on, on a smaller level, on a, on a macro level with the country. Um, trans- I think that a lot of times, and this is maybe my kind of cynical view, that sometimes the, the government... Uh, whether it be city, state, or national, doesn't want to give us the full truth because maybe they think that we can't handle it or they just you know don't want to divulge everything. However, I think that we're very capable. People are a lot more capable than uh, anticipated of being able to handle the actual truth of what's going on. And that's where the transparency comes through because even if it's something I don't want to hear, I want to know about it, right? Yeah. And, th- and th- that's, that's so exactly important. Right. I, I, have a, I have kind of a philosophy that the the electorate, the public is like a jury in court. Mm-hmm. And each side tries to make their best argument yeah. and, and put their best look forward. Yeah. But you can't lie to the jury. You can't yeah. trick the jury. Yeah. And so what's offensive to me, I haven't been in government now for over 30 years, is when politicians or, or political people lie to the public. Yeah. And then and then try to deceive them and then try to get a different outcome at the election or, or just the public perception. Yeah. And so I think the public should be well-informed in that- a smart electorate is a good electorate. Yeah. And that's where that saying comes from, the cover-up is worse than the crime. Always. Because it's always worse than the crime. It, it always seems, it, it's so nefarious. And why not just give us this little bit of information that wasn't so bad, but you made it so much worse by by doing all this kind of cover-up to make I, sure I've we I've seen it over and over again, both when I was in politics and now in the media. Yeah. The cover-up is always worse than the crime. It usually ends up that the cover-up the the thing they did wasn't criminal yeah. and the cover-up becomes criminal. Yeah, it's isn't that interesting? It just doesn't make sense to me, too, because it, I, I think it's, you know, when we were kids, when I was a teenager, I remember saying, oh, I didn't do that. Yeah, you try to get out of it. <laughs> and, and then it's very obvious I yeah, did that. Right, yeah. And then it just makes it 10 times worse. Absolutely. You know, I just if you would have just owned it in the first place. So I always tell people that you have to learn when to stop digging the hole. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You're in a hole. You got to stop digging. So let's speak of holes, uh, because you brought this case to my attention. Uh, I did not know about this until I read your article, essentially. Um and let's talk about uh, Councilwoman Cardenas and, and her brother and how this came about, because uh, I, like I said, in the beginning here, I was on KUSI talking about this because it's a very hot button issue in San Diego. And you're the one who broke the story. You're the one who I wouldn't say created the story, but the story, the indictment, the genesis begins with you. So tell us all <clears throat> about that. Well, you know, th- this didn't happen just uh, one day. Uh, so the person that you're talking about is uh, Andrea Cardenas. She's on the Chula Vista um, City Council. She was elected in November of 2020. So I live in Chula Vista. I was born and raised there. I've run a lot of campaigns down there Mm -hmm. back when I, in the previous life. Um, So I'm very familiar. So when she got elected, 
we saw that campaign. So this was in, in November of 2020. Mm-hmm. So it's now been, uh, you know, more than three years. And when she got elected, she ended up with, I forget the number, but something like $60,000 in debt mm-hmm. at the end of the campaign. And so I have run dozens of campaigns and they never end up in debt. Yeah. Because nobody gives you credit, right? Because they're afraid that after the election, you won't pay the bill. Exactly, yeah. So I have done, I don't know how many pieces, I'm going to estimate over 100 mail pieces mm-hmm. in campaigns over the last 30 years. So these are the, the flyers you get in the mail, right, that everybody hates to, to look at. Yeah. I designed those, so I, I hope people don't hate them too much because <laughs> I spent a lot of time making those. <clears throat> when we send those out in a campaign, we have to go pay the printer, and the, the mail house is the, the company that processes yeah. them. And then they take it to the post office, and then you have to pay the postage, which is usually about 40% of the total cost is the postage. So I've had campaigns where the mail was ready to go, literally in the truck, mm-hmm. and the printer would tell me, it's not going to roll until you bring a check. And if you don't bring it by five, you're going to miss the deadline for the mail. Yeah. Nobody ever, in all the campaigns I did, nobody ever sent the mail without a check. Yeah. When Andrea Cardenas got elected in November of, of 2020, she ended up with $60,000 in debt for mail hmm. to the printer. And that to me strikes me incredibly odd because I've done it myself, or I've done campaigns yeah. and nobody ever gets credit like that. Yeah. And so we started looking into it and uh, we wrote a story in 2000, um, 2021. Yeah, she got elected in 2020. So in early 2021, we started writing these stories about her debt, mm-hmm. which was very unusual. Uh, somebody filed a complaint against her and so it began an investigation. And a few months later, we found out that she had loaned herself money, like $35,000, and then paid the debt off. Mm-hmm. So that was the end of that. That investigation kept going into last year, into 2023. So in the 22 election, we started to watch the campaigns that her brother was running. So her brother is Jesus Cardenas, mm-hmm. and he's a big political consultant. He's run a lot of campaigns. We started looking into every single campaign he ran, and it turned out that in the 20 election and the 2022 elections, a hundred percent of the campaigns that he ran ended up in debt, all to the same printer. Interesting. So one campaign, her campaign was unusual, but the fact that every single campaign of his ended up in debt, then and, it really started to and to the same printer and to the exact same printer. That's interesting. And so we started doing stories in in twenty uh, twenty twenty one, twenty two, and last year uh, into all these these campaigns. Mm-hmm. So in early. Um, uh, losing track of years, right? We're in 2024. Yeah. So in uh, in January of 23, we were doing some research on all of their campaigns, all of their their work, and it's all run through their company. It's called Grassroots Resources. Mm-hmm. It's his company. So we're doing some research online about his company, and his company's been suspended by the state for years, mm-hmm. and he still operates it, which is illegal yes. to operate a company that way. And uh, so there were some other news stories about that. So in our research one day on the internet, there's a website for the federal government for the uh, SBA, Small Business Administration, yeah. where you can research COVID PPP loans. Yep. So they were the Paycheck Protection Program. It was meant to help companies pay for their staff during COVID. Meant to, yeah. Meant to. That's what <laughs> it's designed for, right? And yeah. they put billions of dollars out there. Yeah. A lot of companies uh, applied for it. I did not because I, I don't have a lot of employees and it really didn't affect our, our business that way. And so just on a hunch you could type in the name of a company. And so we typed in grassroots resources and there it comes. And he, they had taken a $176,000 loan. And on the application that you can see online, 
you it shows you how many employees that they claimed that they, that they saved. Yeah. And it had 34 employees. And I know people that have worked for their company mm-hmm. as consultants. Um, nobody had ever been an employee. Nobody that I've ever talked to who worked for them was ever an employee. Usually an independent contractor. Independent contractor, yeah. right? So we started doing some research and couldn't find anybody that had been an employee, yeah. much less 34 employees, right? So when we do a story, I always want to do the best I can to be right mm-hmm. because I don't want to damage somebody uh, yeah, you know, by being wrong. I don't want to damage our, our reputation either. So I texted Jesus Cardenas, and I offered – I told him we were doing a story, and I offered to, to talk to him. And we texted back and forth, and then he agreed to a phone call. Mm-hmm. We did that phone call. And I have the record in my, in my phone record. The call was 155 minutes long. Two and a half hours, we were on the phone. Mm-hmm. And it went round and round and round, almost in a dizzying way mm-hmm. of excuses that he gave me. And he said, you know, they were my employees. And I said, well, I have people that say that you never had that many employees. You know? yeah. So can you prove it up? Yeah. Show me payroll. Show me bank statements. And I used to have a, a company that had 45 employees. And we had a staffer that all she did was maintain the paperwork for yeah. It's a lot of work. Absolutely. It's a lot of paperwork. Yeah. You have to have some records. Yeah, absolutely. Over this two and a half hour phone call, I challenged him to give me something to prove it up. Mm-hmm. Payroll, uh, bank statements, quarterly payments to the state. And everyone was, I, I don't have it. We change banks. My accountant has it. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, I'll give you a week. Uh, I'll wait. And I have all these text messages. So, you know, we're very careful how we document our stories. So he said he would send me documents. So we spent two and a half hours on the phone. Mm-hmm. A couple of days later, I texted him and I said, hey, you haven't sent me anything. Oh, it's coming. The accountant's getting it together. Waited a few more days and I texted him again. And then he said, uh, yeah, I'll get that right over to you. So after a week, I texted him and said, look, I'm going to run the story without your paper. I have two sources. Yeah. I've already given you a chance to comment. We're just going to run the story. Yeah. And um, we ran the story one day without, he never provided any documents at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we ran the story, and the story quoted him from that two-and-a-half-hour uh, uh, interview. There was an interview. There, there's no other way to put it. What he said during that phone call that evolved from they were my employees, by the end of that two-and-a-half-hour phone call, he himself admitted that they were employees of a cannabis company mm-hmm. in town that is one of his clients, one of his consulting clients. Mm. And he named the company. I couldn't have made this up. Yeah. Right? Um he said they were their employees, and I put them on my payroll because they couldn't pay them. And he gave me the story about how he uh, basically fronted for you know those employees as his yeah. to the government because at that time the cannabis guys were he quoted unbankable, right? Meaning they couldn't deposit their cash in banks. Okay. <laughs> so he said, I put them on my payroll and I paid them. Yeah. Because they couldn't. Yeah. And I thought, well, okay. I don't think that's that's the smart thing to do, but I said, so I just have one more question then. If they couldn't pay their employees, then how'd they give you money to pay their employees? True. <laughs> and he said, they gave me cash. Opens up a whole nother can of worms. Opened up a whole, I told him at the end of that phone call, I said, you know, I think what you just admitted to is worse yeah. than had you just said, I made up 34 employees. They're yeah. Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and yeah. Bugs Bunny. Yeah. It was just an incredibly dangerous thing for him to, to do and to admit. So- we wrote the story straight yeah. from the interview, right? So a couple of days later, I started getting phone calls from people, including other reporters, asking me if it was true. Yeah. I mean, because they were amazed. They yeah. said, I read your story. Is it possible that you misunderstood it? Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's a two and a half hour phone call with the, the person. I, 
I think I followed it, you know, pretty carefully. So, uh, but this kind of gets to your original question about about First Amendment. Mm-hmm. I am very, very careful. So this is the statistic that I tell everybody when they complain about our stories. I've owned the paper for eight years. Mm-hmm. We have never had a demand for a correction or retraction. Pretty good. We've never retracted a story. And we've written stories about the mayor and the district attorney and the city attorney. We've broken stories that people have denied were true privately, Yeah. yet they've never demanded a retraction. That's pretty telling in my That's opinion. That's the most telling uh, you know, statistic I have, right? Yeah. When people ask me, is it possible that you misunderstood it? I'd been, I would have been sued. Yeah. I'd be apologizing for stories every day. Yeah. If Absolutely. our stories were not true. And and I think that the reason I want to talk about the First Amendment, too, and I, I still want to finish up on um, on the original uh, topic as well, too. But the First Amendment, so many people get confused with how it works. And as a lawyer, I hear people say, oh, every day, right? free speech, free speech. <laughs> no. All right. Let's That's take not it true. Easy. Uh, yeah. as, as a journalist, as a newspaper, right, you have a duty to tell the truth, right? But you have a different standard when it comes to if you get something wrong, right? right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's the, you know, it's an old, old case at this point, too. But I, it, it interests me because I think that when you're a journalist, you have to be so careful about what you say. Because like what you said, integrity, you, you don't want to ruin the life of the other person, too, yeah. by getting it wrong. But you have that higher standard of making sure that, well, I guess if you're not acting with malice right. is the main thing. Yeah, but in, there are two different things. There's a, the legal standard and then there's the standard of credibility. Yeah, right? correct. If I was wrong in a story and retracted it and avoided getting sued, mm-hmm. I'd destroy our credibility. Yeah, absolutely. They would question everything I ever wrote yeah. from the first day. Yeah. And they would try to throw out everything and, and to, to cover up for themselves, yeah. they would try to discredit us, right? Mm-hmm. So. I protect our integrity more than I protect our legal status, yeah. right? Because getting sued burden. is one thing. To me, it's more important. The thing you can't rebuild yeah. is the credibility of the newspaper. Because mm-hmm. you, so, be, you can be found, uh, I guess, not guilty when it comes to a lawsuit. If but be not credible. Exactly. exactly that, that's right. Yeah, so not you can guilty, win the lawsuit, but you yeah. can't win the credibility. That's back. right. Not guilty and not credible are two completely different yeah. things. Um, so with the, one of the first things I did when I bought the paper is I hired a, one of the biggest First Amendment lawyers in the country. Mm-hmm who advises national networks. I called him up, I paid him a bunch of money, and I said, tell me how not to get sued. Mm-hmm. Tell me where the line is, right? I, I'm, I, I wasn't a journalist, I wasn't sure. Yeah. And so we went through it very carefully as to what constitutes either, not just the malice, but you know, damaging somebody's credibility, right? Mm-hmm. What, what can we say and not say? How sure do I have to be? Yeah. Because sometimes you know, these stories are hard to, to, to confirm. Yeah. They're based on, on one or two witnesses, and so we have to balance information. We don't always have a document. We don't always have a smoking gun. Mm-hmm. And so this was now eight years ago that I, I went through that exercise. And so I've gotten to understand it better. But the most important thing that we have to do is is try to verify the information. Mm-hmm. But it's hard because we're sitting outside. I always tell people, we're looking through a window through the crack in the drapes. That's my view of the world mm-hmm. as to what's going on inside of politics or inside of a company. Um, they don't talk to the press. Yeah. Right? Most people never return our phone call. And so we have to try to put things together from the information that's available. Mm-hmm. And sometimes what's become more and more valuable in our business is sources. Mm-hmm. So having been in government now for 34 years, I have a lot of friends that are in certain positions in, in, in politics or in government. And so I have some embedded sources that are, that are helpful. Mm-hmm. And so at first, some of my inside information came from the, those types of people. Yeah. 
But now more and more, it's people I don't know mm-hmm. from our reputation of being the guys who break stories. Yeah. I now get anonymous calls or people who I've never met before that are inside of a, a, a bureaucracy, an agency, or a, a city government saying, I saw something, and you seem to be the only guy willing to write it. And then they give me documents or they give me insight that connects dots. Because without them, I'm outside the door. That, I, I don't that know. has to feel pretty good. And, and also, I have to say that it makes me uh, – a lot of people do not trust traditional media nowadays, right? right. Uh, your your TV stations, your newspapers, uh, the big papers especially, they're constantly getting stuff wrong, constantly. And so people see them as having less integrity. But a newspaper like yours that's breaking good stories that are, are, are of the utmost importance for San Diegans, for people who, like we care about on a, on a small, on our level, our city level, uh, it makes a lot of sense that someone would come to you with a breaking story and not someone else. It, it's amazing that they do because we're we were a small paper, and now that more and more of it is online, uh, you know, social media was a great equalizer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Before, you know, twenty years ago, if it wasn't in the UT, it didn't exist. Yeah. Even the TV stations were basically just rehashing what was in the UT that day. Yeah. And now with with the UT, especially in the last couple of months that it got sold. Um, they've cut like 75% of their, their workforce. They don't even have an office anymore. Yeah. The UT after 125 years does, is all remote. Yeah. Um, it was a great, a great equalizer for smaller outlets, but it's all based on credibility and content. Yeah. And so we've had to build our credibility. Uh, we've won a lot of awards just in November. Uh, we won the San Diego County Taxpayers Association. It's called their Media Watchdog Award. Awesome. They should rename it after Jeff McDonald, who is the watchdog reporter at the UT. He's won it so many times, it's his award. Yeah. Right? Uh, La Prensa had never even been nominated before. Mm-hmm. And we were nominated last year for this story, the one we're talking about today. Yeah. And the three finalists were Jeff McDonald, Jeff Light, who was the publisher of the UT, mm-hmm. and me. Mm-hmm. And I won it. And so it just shows you that we've gotten to the credibility level of, it doesn't matter that we're a, a originally Hispanic paper. Yeah. It's a... It's now a mainstream news source. Yeah, it's uh, to me it's uh, irrelevant about you know where the origins of like you know it being a Hispanic paper or, or catering to specific people. Now, people like the transparency, yeah, right? Right. And and that should that reinforces your message that this is exactly what you're looking to do in the first place. And this is how much people value that too. I'm sure your uh, your webpage hits have gone through the roof. Since oh, then it's too. it's huge. Yeah, we, we used to print you know forty six thousand newspapers a week. We get 600,000 views a month on, on our website yeah. sometimes. I mean, it just depends on what the traffic is. But more importantly, it's the immediate nature of social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That we know that we can post a story right now mm-hmm. and that big people in town will see it and they'll kick it around. Yep. Uh, you know, we broke a story not just about, uh, about uh, you know, illegal things, right? It's, it's about things that are important about government. Um, the 101 Ash Building. Mm-hmm. Oh. We broke a lot of stories about that. And yeah. It's still ongoing. Uh, we broke a story early in, um, it was like March of last year, the county was about to appoint the new CAO, which they're going to announce today. Mm-hmm. And nobody knew who it was. It was done in secret in closed session. We heard it from a source. We confirmed it. We leaked it. And it stopped the appointment of somebody that I don't think should have been appointed, of somebody who's a political really? person, not an administrator. Yeah. Uh, in Chula Vista last year, they were going to appoint somebody to a, a vacancy on the city council. And we discovered some information about her. We confronted her. We wrote a story. She didn't get appointed. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it, all I try to do, I don't have any power. Yeah. I don't have any more. I have one vote at the election like everybody else does. 
I can't do anything and I don't have a gun and a badge to go bust anybody. All we can do is inform the community. Mm-hmm. And if that changes the outcome of, of a process, then it probably was a tainted process to begin with. 100%. If it can't stand up to the public scrutiny because of one article, yeah. then it, was, it shouldn't have been done. I feel like it shouldn't have been done. So all we do is try to communicate information that I think, again, back to what I said earlier, that the public is like a jury. Yeah. I'm just trying to give the jury all the information so they can make a better decision. If the outcome has changed, that means they were missing a key piece of information that or, they should have had. Or they weren't given that information. Or, right, or it was so being hidden. I, I would say that you, you don't have more power. You don't have a badge or a gun or extra votes, but you have a voice and people listen to your voice now, especially uh, with the awards you're getting with your record so far. A lot more people will listen, especially, and that's why you're getting more stories as well too. Yeah, you know, it, it's there's a lot of pressure. And trust me, it, it isn't easy to be the most hated guy in town sometimes, right? You write <laughs> stories, and I know people don't like it. But- I now feel responsible in that I see things that are going on. And had I not had a platform, mm-hmm. if I had gotten into the media and I was just my old role before, I'd be having coffee and laughing about it, saying, wow, I can't believe those guys got away with that. Yeah, But I, there was, there'd be nothing I could do, right? And so having been in the media, gotten into the media business to do other things, and then these things come along, I feel like if I don't say something, then I'm complicit yeah. in what they're doing. And so I can't stop them. All I can do is just put a light on it and then other people might do something. I never imagined that an indictment would come from this. I I was curious about that too, because you broke the story. Did anyone from the DOJ or the city attorney's office reach out to you? Any, like what, can you talk about I get a lot of phone calls. Okay. I get a lot of phone calls from people saying, are you sure? Yeah. Uh, Are you sure that's accurate? And so I always come back with the same line. I haven't received a letter of retraction yet. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jesus Cardenas knows me. He has my cell phone number. They've never demanded a retraction. Yeah. These stories have been out since February of last year, right? They got indicted. When I read the indictment, it was exactly what our story said. It was just the rest of the story, yeah. the things that I couldn't have known, which was when they got the money and what they spent it on. I, I couldn't have possibly known that. So I was going to ask you about that too, because you said you started doing research. And I know that uh, the SBA for the PPP loans, that is public information and you can access it for anyone and, right. and everyone. Uh, but you started looking into the businesses and, and you know getting more information. Is that public information as well? or did you All the stuff do- we have was all public information. The fact that his company is suspended yeah. is on the Secretary of State website. Yeah. Um, you know, what, one of the things that we found um, that, that I think causes the problem for them is that Andrea Cardenas has worked for her brother's company. Mm-hmm. They basically run it together um, for years. And so she also, as a public official, has to disclose her income and her, and, right, her, her assets, yeah. her, her economic disclosures. And in the disclosures for years, since she's been on the council, she has listed herself as an employee. Well, uh, back in 2021, their company applied for a contract at a public agency, mm-hmm. a consulting contract. I did a Public Records Act request for that application, mm-hmm. for all the emails related to their contract mm-hmm. proposal. In those emails, when they were about to get a contract, the public agency asked Andrea, who was the representative for the company, for their workers' compensation insurance, which is a regular thing to ask for when you're contracting out yeah. for something. And her response was, we don't have any workers' comp, we don't have any employees, we're all independent contractors. Hmm. <laughs> so then we wrote a story saying, well, wait, her financial disclosure says she's an employee. Yeah. But when she was pressed, she said she's an independent contractor. Well, that was the same period of time when we didn't know at, the, at that time 
that they had applied for the PPP loan claiming they had 34 employees. Yeah. She says they've never had workers' comp insurance. So basically using all their information against them. Their own information, yeah. right? And so- There's this no is, trickery. There's no gotcha. This is the power of the California Public Records Act, which is a constitutional protection we have in California mm -hmm. for the public to have access to public documents. But nobody follows through. And I'll give you an example. We just won a lawsuit um, December 28th, three years in the making. Mm -hmm. We sued the city of Chula Vista over their police drones. They're the first agency in the country to be able to fly police drones anywhere in the city beyond what they call visual line of sight. They can't see the drone anymore. Mm -hmm. And they fly over my house sometimes. So I made a request back in uh, April of 21 to view one month's worth of videos. Mm -hmm. And they denied my request. They said, all the videos are exempt. Well, that can't possibly be. I know the California Public Records Act enough to know that they can't all be related to ongoing investigations. So I did a request. They denied it. We sued them. We lost at the district level. We went to appeal. Mm -hmm. And... The appellate court uh, just ruled in our favor between Christmas and New Year. It now set a new standard for the public to gain access to police records. Interesting. And that case is my name because I sued in my name. Yeah. So it's uh, Castaneda's versus Chula Vista is now the new precedent for the public to gain access to documents for, for police documents. So, so do you know what the standard is now? Well, yeah. So the, the old case is the Haney case uh -huh. and the, in the uh, ACLU 2 case, we now created a new standard where they can't use investigative records as a cover okay. for exemptions. And the catch-all, which is the public interest is better served in not disclosing versus yeah. disclosing, it got blown out too. Okay, They have to have very specific tests now for whether a document is releasable or not. And it's they've been hiding under that, it used to be called 6254F uh -huh. in, the, in, in, the, in the code. Um, we just blew that open. This, this case will have statewide and potentially national uh, implications for people's access to police records. So, and I know we kind of talked about this off air too, um, and you have a chance to use that precedent already. Already. With this case, right? <laughs> with the so, card in this case. Yeah, so, so yeah, um, what is today? Today's, so uh, two days ago, both the Cardenas uh, siblings were in court again, mm -hmm. and uh, they had to be, as part of their, the, their indictment, they had to be processed. Mm -hmm. So on January 2nd, they went in for booking mm -hmm. like you do when you're when you get arrested yeah they technically were arrested right and released on their own recognizance so they had to get fingerprinted uh, dna swab and photographed yeah mugshots we asked for their for the mugshots um, the county sheriff's department has a policy that they don't release them that is inconsistent with state law we believe it's a direct violation of the california public records act nobody's ever sued over mugshots yeah yesterday we filed a lawsuit and we are now suing the city, or I'm sorry, the county, over these mugshots. And basically our precedent that we just set two weeks ago <laughs> is now the guiding precedent for what is an investigative record. So we're now quoting our own case. That's so funny. <laughs> this had never happened before. That is so funny. Yeah, the um, that I, I found that to be pretty interesting uh, as well, too. And we were talking about this a little bit off air. But I, I'm curious as to why the sheriff thinks that they're allowed to do something like they're that. They're misinterpreting a, uh, a 2003 uh, state attorney general opinion mm. and a new case, a new bill that was passed in 2021. If you read them carefully, they don't say what they think they say. Yeah. And uh, but you know sometimes the police they use these thin veils of cover. Yeah. And to 99% of people they accept it. Yeah. And then some guy like me comes along that says you know that just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like what our protections 
for the public yeah the thorn in their side and we fight them and so we have sued 11 times for public records we have won every single case including this this now significant uh appeals case it's always been over denial of documents yeah that I mean, eleven and zero as a lawyer, I would love to have that record. <laughs> if um, you were a boxer, it'd be a pretty good record too. <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I I actually don't practice litigation. That's not my forte. But I I'm fascinated by things like this. Uh, when you told me about the appellate court case, I said send that to me right away. I read almost all of it because I just I find lawsuits like that and appeals, uh, you know, really interesting. Um, even though it doesn't help me in my everyday job. Yeah. But I think it's such a it's such a cool thing to have your name on a case that's a precedent standard and you're using it two weeks later for yeah. a, the pretty similar you know situation that, that that's very rare for somebody to use their own their own precedent but uh you know i take a lot of heat for these fights yeah a lot of people don't like it and they think that we're anti-police we're not no i've never said they can't use drones or they shouldn't use drones i think they failed to put into place use policies and and uh, policies that protect our privacy mm-hmm. before they started using this new technology and this is part of the growing pains of new and emerging technology, whether it's in business or in government, the unintended consequences of, yeah. of the, the implications. And yeah. so my case will force now any agency using drones uh, for, for, for policing to have these policies in place and think about what happens to the public. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that you're you're not pro or you're not anti-police or anti-government. You're pro-transparency, just like we talked about in the very beginning. Yeah, it, it's kind of a libertarian view, right? It's yeah. about the public is at the end of the day the boss. Yep, absolutely. And I think that government agencies, whether it's you know political, the mayor's office or police departments, forget who they actually represent, Yeah, who their boss is. The yeah. taxpayers are the boss. The taxpayers should have a higher standing yeah. than the agency does. Absolutely. And for those people who, who might say, um, well, I have nothing to hide. I, I hate this argument, right. by the way. <laughs> uh, but there's a very famous saying uh, that uh, saying that you have nothing to hide and so you don't believe in your rights, essentially, is like saying you don't believe in free speech because you have nothing to say. Right. And that it, makes it, no it's sense. Insane. Like, here's the thing about the police drone. I'll leave it with this, uh, why it's important. So it's a police camera mm-hmm. that's exactly like a body-worn camera that officers, officers yeah. wear. Yeah. But it's strapped to a flying device that can fly over our backyards. Yep. So the police officer wearing a camera can't go climb your fence and look into your backyard. Absolutely. But the drone can. Yeah. And if people don't think that's a violation of our privacy. Oh, it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And so one of the defenses that the police department had to not release the document, the records, the videos, was that it would be a violation of people's privacy to show me the video. And my response was, you already violated our privacy by videoing it in the first place. Absolutely, Absolutely. And the government has no authority to violate our rights like that yeah. and then keep it secret for themselves. Yeah. It's a that, pretty clear violation. Ab- in my absolutely. So I think our case is not only going to open up issues about about the CPRA rights, mm-hmm. the California Public Records Act, but it also goes to privacy and yeah. also could be Fourth Amendment violations absolutely. of illegal searches. Absolutely. I, I don't disagree in the slightest. I think that's absolutely a violation. There's no um, there's no reason to violate someone's airspace, let alone their their private boundaries of their house. You don't have a search warrant. You don't have probable cause or, or an even if you're not hiding anything. Yeah, exactly. It's it still matter. an invasion of your privacy. Absolutely. You can't get your car searched just for no reason. This isn't you know 
Uh, that's not how this country works. That's so. a police state. Yeah, exactly. Thank God we don't have that. Well, <laughs> knock on wood. Um, Art, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Uh, once you give all your information out, your you know email, website, all that information. Sure, great. Well, the, the best way to reach us is we're on all the social media platforms. It's La Prensa SD, L-A-P-R-E-N-S-A, La Prensa. And uh, anybody want to reach me directly, my email is art at laprensasd.com. And uh, we have, you know, breaking stories all the time, not just about politics, about all kinds of things. But we really are getting into investigative reporting. I love it. Um, very few people are left in town to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Make sure you follow them on Instagram, follow on Facebook, Twitter, whatever it might be. Any kind of, do you have TikTok too? No, we don't yeah. do TikTok. Yeah, I, don't <laughs> uh, yeah. I have a face for radio. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's uh, been a a wealth of information. And um, if you have another story breaking pretty soon, I'll make sure to get you back on so we can talk about that too. That sounds good. Thanks. Thank you very much. Take care. This has been the Lawyer in Blue Jeans podcast. My name is Justin Isaac. And thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Take a break from the news and join us at Lawyer in Blue Jeans. If you're curious about the latest wacky cases or have a specific legal inquiry, drop us an email at justin at lawyerinbluejeans.com. Follow us and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes. Thanks for listening to Lawyer in Blue Jeans. Be sure to follow and subscribe whenever you listen to your podcasts. To read the blog associated with this episode, visit olasmedia.com. This episode was produced in studios located in San Diego, California and Tijuana, Baja, California. Creative director Ulysses Breton. Sound engineer Alan Glespar. Lena Alvarez is the producer, serving as executive producer and co-founder is J.C. Polk, and Chad Peace is president and co-founder. Olas Media is an IVC media company. Olas Media.